0: Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Louise Fagan and I'm Gillian Wise and today our guest is Rosemary Cavanaugh. Since graduating from Art College in Ireland, Rosemary has been a graphic designer, art instructor, floral designer, event designer, writer and performer in Dublin, New York, Tokyo, Brussels, Geneva, the international city list goes on all while balancing her family's role in Ireland's international diplomatic efforts as the spouse of an Irish ambassador. We have so many questions and can't wait to hear your stories. Welcome, Rosemary.
1: Hello, 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 Louise. Hello, Gillian. Lovely to be here. Hi, Rosemary. We have a lot we want to get into, but first of all, we're just wanting to know more. So... An ambassador is the official representative to a foreign country, and this is obviously a very important role, but this is only one family member's role in your family and in an ambassador's family. Can you describe your role as the pillar of support in an ambassador family?
2: That's a very good way to describe it, Jillian, uh, as a pillar of support, because that's what I have seen myself as uh, throughout the years, that role grew uh, as my husband's career grew and I felt I felt it particularly as his career grew and I felt that it was a, I had that responsibility because uh, I, I, not only had I made a commitment to him, my husband, but I'd also, in a tacit way, I'd made a commitment to the state representing Ireland. Even though I'm an unofficial representative, completely unofficial, well, I am representing Ireland because that's the face, uh, or I was representing Ireland when we were in those roles, because that's the uh, at the face that people saw when they came to the embassy to different events.
1: And so, what would you say that those duties and responsibilities were like?
2: I think, again, let's take it down to a very practical level. If we were having events at the embassy, that I would oversee them and see, make sure that they were running smoothly. And uh, now there were other people, of course, uh, there were other members of the staff that, that worked with that very, very well. But I would uh, keep an eye on things, how so I felt I could and I could bring something to, some experience to it. But also at the events and while we were um, interacting with the diplomatic corps, and others, business communities, cultural communities, in the different countries we lived in, I would act as a networker. I designated myself a networker in those events because I was meeting, I had the overview of who was in the room, and so I felt, oh, I can introduce this ballet dancer to this uh, musician or this potential sponsor or vice versa, you know. So the, I got a kick out of that, I have to say. That, that, that pleased me to be able, when
0: when it clicked particularly. I love that idea of the networking. And you said that that you had a diplomatic role as well. You felt it like, a, obviously and truly, it, it would be that, that you had also made a commitment to the country. And what, what were the expectations like for your children?
2: I think uh, David and Robert, our sons at the time, as they were growing they they saw our our house kind of transformed into a, a variety of different events and people coming in senior uh, senior officials politicians coming through the uh, to through our residences and they became very familiar with that background and you know they dropped their school bags in the middle of of these events and rushed off to to get <laughs> snacks in the kitchen <laughs> and as they grew then I think now You'd need to ask them, of course. But as they grew, I think that they became very comfortable in uh, all sorts of different situations, social situations, of course. Again, very became very comfortable speaking to people from all different backgrounds, different cultures, mm-hmm. different languages, language skills, education levels, and they. I think I, I think I can say this that they both are very comfortable living. And working overseas and living and and interacting with people from different backgrounds. Very comfortable. So I see that as a as a huge bonus in their lives. And in fact, we've talked about that, Robert David, and I.
1: It's such a specific and unique experience for for them to have had. And, you know, not something that's in their control, but something that they end up benefiting from long term, like you've just described. And I'm curious for you, if we go back a little bit, can you... Describe maybe where and how you grew up and the culture you grew up
2: in. I grew up in Dublin, in Ireland. It's a small city off the west coast of Europe. I grew up in the 70s, 60s and 70s. At that time, things around the world were changing. Well, around the Western world were changing including feminism and women's role in the world. And I grew up with that, especially as a teenager and as a young woman. So that, but that, that's about, ba- I say that because it's a backdrop and I think it's a backdrop to my life. I progressed and I went to art college because art was, was my main interest and passion in life. And I also had an eye on, well, I, I needed a career that's going to travel because I'd already met Paul. And he had uh, described to me his wish to join the Irish Foreign Service, and I was intrigued. And I knew that we were going to be together from early on, and I therefore I chose graphic design because I wanted to, I wanted something that I could take around the world with me. didn't quite work out that way. But anyway, I am one of seven children. I come from an Irish, uh, obviously Catholic home, and I was sixth of seven children perfect place to come in a family nobody really paid too much attention to you so therefore you got on with what you wanted to get along with and um, in a positive way of course I went to art college and then we got married on the 3rd of July and on the 4th of July I found myself traveling to Beijing, China, and that was in 1980, which uh, was, Beijing was not a, a, it was not a popular destination, let's put it that way, and mm-hmm. people did ask me, are you sure? Yeah.
1: <laughs> because at uh,
2: that stage, it was uh, just post-Mao's China. As it is a communist country, and it was then.
1: And just to, to clarify too, when you moved to China, that was for one of Paul's postings?
2: That was Paul's first posting overseas as a young diplomat. We were both extremely young, And it took two or three flights to get to Beijing because uh, we flew to Heathrow and then it was on to Geneva and then over to Dubai. And then we traveled to Beijing where Paul took up his first posting as a, a young third secretary at the embassy there.
1: And so when you were growing up, was there any specific event or anything that happened or value that was instilled in you that ended up setting you up for this life you have. I think so. And I've reflected on that quite often. I think my parents brought
2: me up to to be resourceful, practical. I don't mean this in a negative way, but don't put yourself first. And don't always put yourself first, I suppose I should rephrase that. There are things there that will be presented to you if you keep a good perspective on life. And don't be too serious
0: and yet be serious enough to take whatever role comes your way. Take it seriously. I love this because internationally some of us have this real, very romantic view of Ireland and Irish culture and its myths and storytelling and humor and, and all these things and, and deep rooted sense of family and everything that you've described, it certainly supports supports that view. When you were in those early days, like traveling as at that time a young couple did you have to go through any training or were you just allowed on on the plane and then in the foreign service world because you were married to paul back in those
2: days in 1980 i'm not sure about this the rule but i had to be married i think i had to produce a wedding certificate marriage certificate in order to travel with or to china what strikes me now is Dickensian almost <laughs> Yeah, but that was the case back then. And I'm not sure my parents would have okayed it. I'm not sure they would have allowed me travel to China as an unmarried woman at You know, accompanying my boyfriend, as he would have been, or (laughs) fiance, as well. In those days, now, of course, that's all changed. The Air Assurance Services is very diverse and respects all sorts of unions. But back in those days, that was one thing we had to produce together, was a marriage certificate. And then I was good to go, as they say. And as to training, there was some some lectures on, and now you're going to China, information Mm -hmm. about what to expect in those days. But it was quite light when I think about it now. And I was probably fortunate that it was so light because I was very young. I was 22. And I saw it as a great adventure and that our life together was starting as this great adventure. Of course, I was slightly nervous and um, wasn't quite <laughs> sure about to pack because Paul said to me, well, there aren't any supermarkets in uh, Beijing in those days, in 1980s. There is nowhere you're going to be able to buy, you know, let's say, shampoo, things oh. that you use, products, you're not going to be able to them. So I'd advise you to bring a lot of it. When I heard that, I said, where am I going again?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I packed what I needed, all that I would need, sent it over in a, a great big wooden box, and it arrived soon after we got there and I happily lived in this very different environment, very strange, nothing that I had lived in Dublin, the years I'd lived and grown up in Dublin, there was nothing that prepared me for that. No matter what my parents would have said to me or my family or teaching, or this was a very different
1: experience. In what ways was it so different?
2: Well, in that way, there there was no. There was one store in just to talk about that a little bit. There was one store in Beijing called the Friendship Store, and that's where all the foreigners went to shop for day to day things like store food and food shopping. And I remember the fruit and vegetables were scarce in those days. So I remember distinctly when lemons appeared in the friendship store in May, the telephone would ring and people would call each other and say, There's lemons in the in the friendship store, get yourself down there. <laughs> For people would drop pens <laughs> and drop kids <laughs> and drop and rushed to the front <laughs> <restaurant>. door. <laughs> what was strange too was leaving a city like Dublin, which, as I say, was a small city, but still it was a modern city. To go to a city where the only mode, mo- one of the only motive of conveyance, and particularly for the, the Chinese themselves, were bicycles or the public bus. After that, nobody owned a car there. Nobody. And whereas you fast forward to today, families now have two and three cars, which is a, a problem from a parking point of view. Not to mention the quality of the air in Beijing. English language was not spoken, of course, and no signage in English. You had to become quite intrepid and navigate your way around the city through the bicycle thronged streets. And the food was very different and not at all as wonderful as it is today in Beijing. The food. Was very rudimentary. Got to be very careful, and just your everyday interactions mm. with people. I remember walking down Wangfujing, which is one of the main thoroughfares in the city, still is today. And I stopped it, to look in a shop window, and it looked like it was a drapery store. I looked in the drapery store, and there was—I remember that there was a plumbing equipment in the like piping in among the the, the fabric. And I thought this was quite unusual, and it was. But as I stopped to stare in the window, a crowd developed behind me. And they weren't looking at the plumbing and the fabrics or whatever the unusual sight was in the window. They were looking at me. <laughs> I turned around to leave the, the window to go on along my way. And there was I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. And this is the really, this is how it felt. There were about a hundred people around me. Oh. A song. <laughs> now, this is, a, I have to reiterate that this is 1980. Now you could stop in Beijing and recite a poem up on a podium and people would pass by and not even pay, pay much attention. But in those days, you were quite an unusual sight. So for me, then, I began to I become very aware of that. And you have to deal with that.
0: You're in this new country and new experience and you're young and you're also starting out as a couple. Were you able to do any of your own personal creative work? Were you able to find a place for your creativity?
2: Two things that happened to me while I was there in terms of working. I was offered a job, I think because I was standing in front of the the person who offered me this job. He, He was starting a liaison office for a trading company in Beijing because in those days it was just beginning to, to develop and change into the economy that it has become today. But these were the early, early days and very, very baby steps. And he was looking for somebody to help him run this office, and I looked like a good candidate to him. So he asked me, "Did I know anything about filing, typing, and office duties?" Uh, to which I answered, uh, "No, I don't. I've spent the last four years in an art college." And an- well, <laughs> he said, "Well, you're hired." And. I- <laughs> <laughs> And I navigated my way through that office. And there I worked for two years. And I worked my way around things. And uh, typing was not my strong suit, but uh, I worked it out. And I must say, I enjoyed that job very much. While I was working in that office, there was a a Chinese lady called Madame Wang. And she was helping with the translations, Chinese language translations. And she beckoned me one day and said to me, Where's Mary? do you know anything about teaching? I think you'd be a wonderful teacher of English to these young middle school children. And they are in a special school outside of Beijing, a special school being that they were daughters and sons of the political elite. And mm-hmm. I think oh. you, you you strike me as somebody who would manage out there. And I was looking at her thinking, how am I going to tell this lady that I mis- don't know very much about teaching. But I did (laughs) know this, though. I did know this, that I I loved teaching. And I found that out while I was in art college. I was given a role, much in the same way. I was given a role as a teacher to a school, a technical school. These were boys, mostly, who were going on to become electricians and plumbers, etc. They asked me, would I teach sign writing and lettering? So I learned there that I love teaching, even though I really wasn't a teacher of English language, and that's for sure. And uh, so I, I said to Madam Wan, yes, I will take that job, please. I went to this middle school and taught there, taught English there to 1414 14-year-old uh, Chinese students. And that was a very, very rich experience, I must say. I, I took time out of my working day as an administrator in, in an office and to teach English to young Chinese teenagers. I really enjoyed that because it was, a, it told me a lot about the country I was living in. It was mm-hmm. very rudimentary. Nothing was a school without any of the many resources, let's put it that way, even though it was mm-hmm. a part of the school.
1: I mean, it sounds like it was really impactful. And I know you spent time in a lot of different places. Can you tell us about the different countries that your role in your family was was taken to and how often you had to relocate?
2: Well, we relocated many times from China. Uh, we returned to Ireland and uh, there our first son was born, David. He was born in Dublin in 1982. And so that, that again, had an impact on my life and changed things for mm-hmm. me. Very soon after that, ben Paul was, uh, was appointed to the United Nations in New York, where he became a member of the Secretary General of the United Nations team. This was a wonderful opportunity for him. So we packed up. This This time we packed David as well and went to New York. I had been to New York as a a student. I had spent a summer there, but I never really thinking that I would come to live in New York. I must say this was very formative for me. Even though I had had the experience in China, New York was very different because it was a little bit more recognizable, of course, you know, the, the culture, even though these are two very different countries, Ireland and the United States. Um, particularly New York, but I felt that this is somewhere I could flourish. Whereas in, in China, I had to work things out. I thought New York is somewhere where I could actually flourish. And I think I did. And my husband's career was, you know, he he was very fulfilled in in what he was doing. So we stayed, we signed a contract for three years and almost 10 years later, we were still in New York. There I began to work as a graphic designer at last. And I worked in different ad agencies and I worked in design studios. Mostly I worked as a freelancer, as a graphic designer, and it was very fulfilling, really enjoyable. I also was a mom, and I met other mothers and other New Yorkers. We were living in Westchester County on the Hudson River side, so in a lovely, lovely town called Hastings-on-Hudson. And I must say, I made... Wonderful friends there. Those years I look back on very fondly. Our second son was born there, Robert, in 1986. And their life began to to open out. And the experience that I was having with New Yorkers and with people who are so direct and honest and I just loved mm-hmm. it. I, it. It really um, captured my imagination and I became almost became a New Yorker. <laughs> to complete that particular posting, we left New York in 1992 uh, and we went to live in Cyprus where Paul became an advisor, a political advisor to the United Nations Peacekeeping Force that was there oh. at that time. And this was an idyllic place for us mm. to live. I'm so grateful that we got to live there in those years. Two young children, two young boys, this sunny island, beautiful and mm. uh, school system, very like Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> they come from the very free and easy New York school system to this quite proper and school uniforms <laughs> and hello, how are you? And <laughs> A very nice environment for children and for, for Paul and I to live in. I deepened my interest in painting and drawing and took classes there and began actually to teach drawing to the international community that I found in Cyprus. Cyprus is a small island between, I suppose, Turkey and the Middle East. I'm making the map in my head now. It's that area in the Mediterranean, a wonderful place, mountainous. You could go skiing there in the morning time and swimming in the afternoon. One of those environments for our children. Wow. And there I measure, again, wonderful made trends within the international community and the Greek and Turkish community as well. And my interest where politics who and who was I in all of this and meeting and understanding the logistics of struggles and communities with struggles having come from Ireland of course we have our, had our own struggle here so to be in another island where there was a quite a large struggle between the the two communities and it was very interesting to learn more about that and how they were dealing with it and how we dealt with our own difficulties in Ireland and comparing the two.
0: This is it's so fascinating Rosemary I'm just kind of I'm curious about where you are now and you're looking back on that time and you're able to maybe connect some dots but you were just talking about the kind of the tone in in Cyprus at the time and why Paul was there and and your family was there. And you're talking about the correlation maybe with what you were experiencing in Ireland or what was happening politically around the world, I guess. Were you acutely aware of that at the time? Or is this something that that you, when you reflect on, you realize?
2: I think, you know, when you're living in a situation like that, in a place like that, you are aware of it. And you're always careful to be mindful of who you're speaking to. And that is all something that has become a lifelong interest of mine. Be careful who you speak to be careful of what you're saying to people mm-hmm. because it impacts, it, the impact it will have on your interlocutor. Obviously, in the Greeks and Turkish Cypriots had deep-rooted difficulties. So when you were with either community and to just to say that we had freedom of movement on that island and that was not granted to everybody so therefore this is a good example you would not discuss that with people if you were with the Turkish community you wouldn't really talk about the Greek community or how much interactions you were having with the Greek community things like that to become aware of that and uh, funnily enough I think I learned a lot about that in New York because there you're meeting very different people from all sorts of different backgrounds I just to go back into my childhood and my uh, young adulthood. I had come from Ireland, a pretty homogeneous society back then. Mm -hmm. Completely changed now. Much more diverse now and much more progressive. Much, much more. Well, I grew up in this very homogeneous society. I learned in New York, not everybody that you're speaking to understands the culture that you've come from. Be aware of that. I think the boys are very aware of them. That's why they're successful socially, to be very careful who's in front of you and um, their sensitivities.
1: Having to navigate these different dynamics in politics, is that something that you've enjoyed in your role? Or have you found it especially challenging? Or is it just, you know, kind of expected?
2: I've enjoyed it because I've learned from it. I, I have enjoyed and understanding that, that very thing that people from all sorts of different political backgrounds, social, religious backgrounds, to be careful not to judge or at least try not to judge. Of course, we'll try not to judge people. And another thing, I, I, I do have opinions and I share them, but I'm careful. <laughs> <laughs> I am careful with, uh, uh, in this life I lived. I've had to be careful.
0: Rosemary, what was Paul's first appointment as an ambassador?
2: Well, I became ambassador to Brussels in 2004. It was a particular role within the EU at the time. It was uh, their ambassador to the, to the EU Foreign Service, and that was his first appointment. And he was very happy. And there we were, and in Brussels, Brussels, wonderful city, a small city, and French speaking and Flemish speaking. And in fact, there they have their own community struggle or inter-community struggle between the Flemish um, speakers and the, the French speakers was something I became uh, super aware of when I was there. In, in, in any case, there took French very seriously and started to take classes in French. And that was uh, something that grew in me there. Oh, I actually enjoy language and learning mm. languages. So much so that when we went back to China, yeah. our second time in China, I took Mandarin Chinese. I can't say I could have an intellectual discussion with the Mandarin Chinese (laughs) speaker, but
1: I can can order a cup of coffee and get myself a close down. Rosemary, I'm just curious. So, you know, you're in this role as part of an ambassador's family. And in theory, people, if they're unsatisfied in their jobs they can leave but for you it's not you're not just you wouldn't just be leaving a job you know you have your whole family that's involved in it and i'm just curious how you get through times maybe when you're not enjoying the role or it's extra challenging
2: yes and there were there of course there are those times especially as it became clear to me that my career because my husband's job is so demanding and and so fulfilling and challenging and i understood And this is probably where the practicality and the flexibility that my family, my own family, imparted to me to be flexible, be practical. I saw that I ought not go into competition with my husband. I know this is not very PC to say today, but as a woman, I made that decision early on that my career was going to have to take a back seat. That was the reality. Mm-hmm. Lots of people today manage it much better, but you know, multitasking was an, at that level was a little mm-hmm. more than I cared to take on. Also, I, I, I should say here, I, I I did love and enjoy. Being uh, a mother and being part mm. of a diplomatic family, I did I did enjoy that. It wasn't a um, it wasn't a difficulty for me. But not having a career, not being able to follow my passions uninterrupted, was difficult. And I look back on that now, and I think. You know, how fortunate was I to have lived this life, even though it meant I did have to make big compromises. And they were in not being able to conclude and reach the standards I wanted to reach or, or become a published author or produce pieces of art in, in publicly. And
0: there's still time. <laughs> yes, I was going to say yet is the end of it. Yeah, that. exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing too. I, I liked the language that you used of uninterrupted, work of yours because amazingly you were able to re-establish yourself in each place and pick up a new project or passion and you know learning languages or teaching or writing or taking an, a class like it's it's just amazing that you were still able to do all of that
2: I think Gillian, that was that was the the thread, the life thread that goes through my life is that even though I was committed to family and to Paul's career and to to being that pillar, I also knew that my creativity, in order to function successfully within that life, I needed to to pursue the, the creative side of me. I needed to do that.
0: You know, Rosemary as you and paul traveled the world he received new postings and you also were growing as a as a person and maturing once he became an ambassador and had that position and then had multiple postings your comfort level grew i you know, had a chance to witness that a little bit when we met. And I'm curious, you think about the other spouses in the international diplomatic community and you're, you're all in new places. Did that affect or impact the other spouses that you would meet or the, or the communities that you were able to build in the diplomatic circle?
2: I can almost point to the moment where it culminated, that feeling of uh, comfort. Um, I'm comfortable in this role. I'm comfortable with who I am mostly. And that moment arrived in Beijing, our second tour there, or posting there. That was between 2013 and 2017. The, the spouses of the diplomats in uh, Beijing at that time were um, an intrepid group because they had chosen, yes, we will accompany our, our spouses to Beijing. At that time, it was heavy pollution, It was the early years of Xi Jinping's time as the the leader of the Communist Party and the the president of China. So you were taking on quite a lot by going there and that reflected in the caliber of uh, spouses who, who were there. There was a group called Beijing International Society. It was a speaker's group. They invited experts on China to address a membership, a Beijing International Society's membership group. It was a membership of maybe about 300 or so of foreigners foreign international community living in Beijing. It was, a, it was run by the diplomatic community and the spouses. And I joined and six months into it, they turned to me and said, would you chair this group? I took on that role of chairing the group this particular um, society with ease because mm. I had lived the life I live. I'd understood the parameters, my, the parameters of my mm. role, and I understood that this is going to deliver great richness, which it did, of understanding China in those days, China in historically, China uh, economically, China politically, because they were all the uh, expert speakers that we invited to come and address our membership. I shouldn't say it was a role of a lifetime, but it certainly was a, a big role. I ran the, the chairmanship of, of the society from all points of view. That's when I felt it's, it culminated and continues how at home I felt in that environment.
0: Thank you for being so open about it all, Rosemary, because it really does paint a, a different picture than than I think most of us know and understand about what it is to live in the diplomatic circles, and especially in the spotlight of once Paul became an ambassador, and then you were in this spotlight in a microcosm as well, because you were with the United Nations and then representing Ireland. Where are you now?
2: We have now come back to Ireland. Paul is still with the Irish Foreign Service, he's a senior member of staff there, and he is the chief of protocol. He deals with the president of Ireland, interacts with the officials and the Irish government. He travels quite a bit and he's still as busy as ever. And I am now using those skills to settle back into Ireland and to settle into life here and re-establish myself, albeit with a quite a different mindset now. Mm. And as i said before, Ireland has changed enormously mm. in those years that we've been away. So becoming familiar with the, those changes and understanding your place, my place in that. I'm enjoying it. There are challenges to it. I'm working out now. All of those things that I've talked about in terms of whether it's writing or drawing or teaching or whatever, I'm making plans to bring it all together in some way, bring all the strands together and produce something. Because I do have that in me. You know, I want to produce something that Mm -hmm. encapsulates it all. And you're giving me this opportunity today is probably a very good place to be different personalities I've met throughout my uh, life. I'd like to encapsulate them. Our time in Paris, in France, uh, our time in Switzerland, when Paul was appointed ambassador to to France on Monaco. That was, I I think, for both of us, it was was a wonderful moment. It was a very proud moment for Paul because he's francophone and francophile. So I'd like to bring all of those experiences together in some manner.
1: Is there anything for you that's off limits when you're storytelling about your experiences? Like, are you expected to filter yourself in any way or do you have to be mindful of how you're framing things?
2: oh gosh yes for sure your anecdotes <laughs> would have to be filtered and edited <laughs> yeah. very definitely of course because you're, you're not going to and not that i have anything terrible to say about anybody but you know you you'd have to be very careful about them because that we were having high very high level people visit and stay with mm-hmm. us and. um Stay at the embassy, and I would be very careful there on on what, on what I say. But you know, you, you your imagination can, if, if you use the fiction to to tell your story, I find that that can
1: right.
2: be passed <laughs> a
1: lot of uh, <laughs> tricky situation. I mean, it's an interesting approach to have to take. I'm I'm not a writer. Like my, I guess, medium of choice is painting, and it's not the same kind of filtering that you have to do because I'm not explicitly sharing someone's story like in <laughs> words that people are reading. So I, it's just a fully different approach than what I'm used to, so I find that interesting.
2: As I've said before, you learn to, to edit and to self-edit and to be mindful that the, the, the people that you're speaking about are real people and they exist and that they have their mm-hmm. sensitivities. Oh. And I'm very grateful to have learned that. Early on in my life, and I suppose as was uh, as you know, growing up in a in a society that I'm not going to say everybody was the same because that's not true. It wasn't like that then. It wasn't really like that. Even if we had that perception, going out into the world then and and seeing that there are people who have been brought up in very different ways and lived their lives in very different ways, I found all of that fascinating, interesting. I wanted to hear more. Everybody has a story in them and to. Elicited out <laughs> to get them to speak about themselves and to speak about their experiences. It was the small experiences, the small lives that I was interested in, where you, where you got your beginnings. You know.
0: That was beautiful. Is it worthwhile to just reflect a little bit on when the three of us, our lives intersected? at the time i was doing a course with molly peacock we were teaching a course on i think it's developing it was like from the page to the stage and you took that course at the 92nd street y and um, I just knew you as Rosemary. I, you were Rosemary, who had a beautiful Irish accent. I didn't know anything about your, your background. And you came into the course, you were very funny, a wonderful storyteller, natural talent, and we really hit it off. And that was a, a really special time for me in my life with raising my kids. And it was wonderful to have met you being at the, the place where we each were at that time. And, and what were your plans when you took that course? What were your intentions, did you think?
2: That was my memory service, it was 2007, 2008. And I, again, was seeking this outlet for for my creativity with a view to finally producing something. The 92nd Street Y was somewhere I knew offered wonderful classes and courses and uh, from everything from poetry, re to dirt bike racing I think that you yeah, know, there was, yeah. <laughs> it was a huge a huge selection of interest when I was leafing through it and there I saw so you want to be a stand-up comedian and this is not something that I had considered ever but I, 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 I do love comedy and I like to make people laugh and to hear people laughing I took that task and that's where you had script writing and which is most interesting I remember going to that class and uh, typically in New York, there were some jaded New Yorkers there <laughs> and there were some very enthusiastic people from other parts of the States and me. I remember one particular character and he he looked like Roger Dangerfield. He really did look like him. And I think people had told him his entire life that he looked like one of his fellow students. <laughs> and when he got up to perform, He didn't quite sound like (laughs) I loved it, it was a lot of fun, we had a lot of fun together and your class was excellent. And uh, a little later, once I'd concluded that, I mentioned it to one of the friends within the diplomatic community. She phoned me a few days later and said, "Uh, Rosemary, would you like to perform your act in front of some of our gathered diplomatic uh, spouses? And friends. And I gulped. And uh, I could hear a voice in my head saying, this is an opportunity. Don't say no. But every bone in my body was saying, say no. (laughs) 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 But I I said, yes, I will. And there's where I phoned you, Louise. I think maybe two minutes later, (laughs) I phoned you. And I said, Louise, I'm going to need your help to direct me as much as possible and you were living at that point in Canada yeah. and I was living in the and we made it work We did, and it was a great success.
0: It was fun so thank yeah you. you were you were you were fantastic and then in our friendship and interactions continued and you were very supportive of a project I was working on that Gillian got to witness its launching the a charity that was about bringing stories to children and the hospitals and I know Gillian I don't know if, how much you remember of that launch but it was at the ambassador's residence
1: (laughs) I remember that I remember I mean I wasn't that young I was 16 I remember what Mm -hmm. I wore and being excited about getting a new dress for it and it felt very luxurious going up in your elevator that opened into your your place and like the balcony and the food and just like meeting everybody and I mean I was really from the lens of a I guess experiencing the event rather than like, you know, behind the scenes type stuff. But it was just so fun meeting you. And I remember meeting Robert. I don't remember if David was there or not, but yeah, it was just really fun. I felt very special. I'd been to New York before, but this was kind of a totally different experience and it felt very cool. The
2: part of our life especially when Paul was um, appointed ambassador, was that we were housed in the ambassador's residence around the world, from Beijing to, to Tokyo to New York. These wonderful residents, in the century of these world-class cities. That residence on uh, 79th and East End Avenue. We really enjoyed that part of life. Of course, it came with the you are represent. So you must actually represent and and, uh, entertain and have people coming to stay and as I say uh, officials coming to stay and we used every inch of those residences to represent Ireland in all sorts of different ways and met some wonderful people like yourselves and like you, Gillian.
1: I think it would be fun to um, maybe read through Rosemary's timeline that she had shared with us prior, just to really explain, because she only touched on a couple of the places that they lived and, you know, it's so many places back to back. Is that okay? Fabulous. Go for it. Okay. So I'm not going to read through it all, but I'll read through kind of the point. So in 1980, she graduated from art college as a graphic designer. Three weeks after graduation, on July 3rd, her and Paul married. And then on July 4th, like she said, Paul got his first posting and they moved to China. 1982, so two years later, they returned to Dublin and that's where David was born, their first son. 1983, so the year afterwards, Paul was seconded to the United Nations in New York, and there he joined the secretary general executive team. And like Rosemary said, um, I think the initial contract was three years, but they stayed for much longer. (laughs) And then there is where Robert was born, their second son in 1986. 1992, they moved to Cyprus, and Paul had the role um, of political advisor to the UN peacekeeping force. 1996, so four years afterwards, they moved to Tokyo, Japan. After that, 1998, they returned to Ireland for 15 years. 2001, they returned to New York. 2003, they went back to Dublin. (laughs) 2004, they moved to Brussels. 2006, they were in Geneva. 2007, they moved back to New York again. 2009... They were in France and Monaco, I believe. 2013, they were back in Beijing, China. 2018, in Tokyo, Japan. And now 2022, they are in Dublin. Incredible amazing
0: it's amazing I'm glad thank you for doing that because we didn't get to all of those stops and you know the thing is in each of those stops she had to reestablish a home create a whole new network of community support the role of the event because as we saw when we were very very privileged to have been in in their home at that launch and then I went to another event there and they are very much and it was all international it was extraordinary and also Mm. Rosemary when she brought me in to do this extra work with her, this work on these extra projects, I had the beautiful experience of sitting in the room with a lot of other ambassador spouses who were also reinventing themselves every time they Mm -hmm. went. So they were automatically looked for connection. And they also had a number of projects outside of their own personal development that they needed as Rosemary described, just for her own sense of being who she is as a person. They also, we're doing a lot of philanthropic work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a it's an interesting network that doesn't get a lot of attention outside of the Diplomat TV series, which um, mm-hmm. we didn't need to talk to her about that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and also just acclimating your family and your kids to these new places, like along mm-hmm. with yourself and your own projects. It sounds challenging. And like she said, her kids became very adaptable and flexible and... Mm-hmm. I think that's huge. And Susan Keogh talked to, about, you know, the similar experiences I think her kids had yeah. when they were moving around.
0: Yeah, it does set them up for an interesting life of a fuller life, the, the mm-hmm. feeling of what is open and possible, perhaps, but also how yeah. to navigate kind of any situation. Because I do remember when we arrived for the event, and I we were very early because I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosemary just called down to her son and said, Oh, this is Jillian. And he, he and his girlfriend whisked you off somewhere.
1: Yeah, which was really nice because, it, you know, I was thinking, okay, he's born in 1986. I'm born in 92. That's six years difference, which as adults is fine. But 16 to 22 is like not the same vibe that I'm like, oh, they're having to hang out with this like teenager. And I mean, it was very kind of them to let me hang out with them and or tag along to whatever they were doing. What you know, were you doing? was getting set up. I don't know. <laughs> Do you remember? Okay. Probably watching them drink or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, that's um, funny. No, but I just really remember he was awkward very... awkward. awkward. Yeah.
0: Well, from a parent's perspective, I just remember thinking, oh, thank you. That is so nice. Because I just remember him coming down and being, sure, come on. Well, this is, yeah, let's hang
1: out. It was just... Yeah, it's kind of cringy to think back on, but I mean, <laughs> okay, you know, right. it's... Sure sure I mean it was and then I don't know if you remember I just want to
0: want to bookend that little event small amount of time with after the event everybody left do you remember we sat in Rosemary's kitchen and we made frozen pizza because we were all hungry we hadn't eaten (laughs) and we just put on like a 10 minute thin crust pizza or whatever and we just had a bite to eat and then we left but it was like it was just very you know and again that's like balancing that this is our home this is we're mm-hmm. gonna pull put frozen pizza in the oven after having a an event of hors d'oeuvres and it was just yeah. it was great it, it was like these this is why Rosemary and I got along so well because yeah. she's that kind of a person she's willing to be and kind to everybody so yeah I'm excited for her and what comes next
1: yeah me too. Me too. So many stories. Mm -hmm. Thanks again to Rosemary Kavanaugh for being here. And we'll keep everybody up to date on what she's up to. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episodes, like, and review the Sound Lens podcast and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sound Lens Podcast. And for more episodes, visit soundlenspodcast.com. Love you.
0: Love you too. Bye.